Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Clifford Humphrey. Clifford is a friend. Uh, he served as one of the first faculty members of Thales College, and he has recently moved from Troy University in Alabama to become executive vice chancellor of the college system of, in the Florida college system. Uh, way back in April of 2023, Clifford wrote an interesting essay entitled The Ends of Mere Classical Schools, Which Way, Western Man, for the American Reformer. I read it and thought Clifford did a great job speaking into a current conversation that's happening in the classical education world. Today, I'm excited to welcome Clifford on the show. So great to see you, man. Yes, great to be here where the best ideas win. Obviously, this is one of the best ideas, so let's win. Let's do it. Uh, well, I wonder if you could start with um, catching our listeners up on the, the debate, uh, in part because this episode will air sometime in season five, so it will be several months after your essay. Um, so um, catch us up. Some, some names in particular that I know are part of this debate are Matthew Freeman, Jessica Houghton-Wilson, Scott Yenner, Jeremy Tate, and your article fits somewhere in this string of, I think, 15 or so articles that are part of this conversation across First Things and the American Reformer and uh, the American Conservative and the Classical Ed Review and Law and Liberty and perhaps four or five other different web journals. So what is yeah. the debate that's happening and where does your article sit in the middle of all that? Yeah, one one that you didn't mention was uh, there were two, two, three articles, I think, at the Ad Fontes Journal. Uh, so that's another place that people are looking for where to go. Um, so I'll, I'll mention another one of those particularly. Yeah, this is a debate which I'm glad we're keeping it going because it's it's an important one, and I don't think it it should go away. I think it's something that's important that we continue to kind of work through. So um, a few months ago, a mysterious figure named Matthew Freeman dropped an article in the American Conservative uh, in which he made a few challenges to classical education, and he basically said out loud things that a lot of us have kind of been thinking for a while. Something I mentioned in my articles, I, I've always been kind of surprised at the high degree by, with which everyone agrees not to really talk about the disagreements in classical education. Specifically, my article talks about the differences between the two words, classical and education. So I hope we can kind of parse those out uh, in case people don't want to bother reading my article. But um, basically, it comes down to two different, uh, two different, broadly speaking, views on those two things. And there's a kind of a contradiction that's been kind of working through the classical ed movement as it has grown. And obviously, it has, has been growing for a while. Um, I, I liken it to the American Revolution period in history. So there's there has been lots of agreement on who the enemy is. And, and so we can all get on board with the revolution for that. But when it comes to actually writing the constitution mm -hmm. and agreeing on, okay, here's what we're gonna do going forward. Now, now all the knives come out and, and there's a lot of disagreement that, that arises, which is good and necessary for any kind of big movement to happen. So here we are at that stage, what do we do about it? So it's important to recognize that um, everyone has agreed, okay, the current trajectory is, there's something wrong with that. And we should have a label that means people who are against the current trajectory, let's call it classical. If you are against the current trajectory, welcome aboard. You're part of the classical ed movement and, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. That's where that's where we've been, which is really good. Um, but now we're trying to bring some coherence to what is this movement and what are we going to agree on and disagree on moving forward? 
And there are thousands of schools that have this label classical. It's not like it's trademarked or anything. You know, anybody could start a school and, and call it classical. And again, that would just be a signal to potential parents and families. Hey, we're doing things different from the from the trajectory that we've been on for the last several decades. So uh, if you're on board with with what we're doing in as far as questioning the current model, welcome aboard. So. Um, uh, you know, the, the couple debates that started with this Matthew Freeman article uh, really brought out the, the the disagreements, particularly sort of what is the what is the telos that we're after here? What is what's the goal of classical education? And, and that's a debate in itself because a lot of people will say, well, classical education isn't really about creating a certain kind of student. It's more about pedagogical methods. And if you know you can you can use those methods for any aim, right? As long as you're using those methods, you're classical, right? So that's one of the disagreements. Uh, so maybe we can get into my article a little bit to kind of get into the substance of those two things. Yeah, I think so. We'll get there here in uh, in just a second. I think it's, um, but I think that's a that's a really important point that you bring out because it's really easy for classical schools to focus on a pedagogy. I think. Uh, in an earlier iteration of Thales Academy, we focused on doing Socratic seminars as what made us classical. Mm -hmm. And that was under the particular vision that leadership had at the time, but uh, people on leadership shifted. And today we would still say, it's really important to do Socratic seminar. That's essential to what we are as a school. But I think we would focus, we've, we've worked a bit more in the last few years to develop a a particular mission statement as a faculty that we exist to cultivate excellent people through the pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness. And today, I think our leadership would really be aligned and unified in saying that we use Socratic seminar to affect, to get to that end. The end mm -hmm. is the mission. Socratic seminar is not itself the end. And, but that was a process that took us several years to, to go through, and it's, it's never done. We, depending on how leadership shifts in the coming years, we might have some further refining of even that mission that, that makes it more clear what we're trying to do. And I, it seems to me that something like that is happening on a large scale nationwide. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add a couple yeah whether of it's whether it's Charlotte Mason or whether it's Trivium, whatever, they're the same kind of thing, right? So if exactly. we can just... Uh, move yeah, beyond and, the, the pedagogical methods and get to something deeper. Well, and just to add a couple more details on that debate before we jump into your article, um, the really big questions then that that drew multiple people out, uh, Freeman came out sort of guns blazing and asked the question, is the, is the classic learning test participating in the very things that it was seemingly founded to oppose, particularly mm -hmm. with the question of diversity in reading lists? And that then brings up all the educators who are ready to fight for this text or that text and why. Uh, and really a lot of um, those names I rattled off kind of fall into two camps. There are folks who would say we should read things because they are inherently excellent. And there are others who would say we should read things because they bring a different voice to the conversation that has been silenced or has been dismissed over the years. Uh, and, and we're achieving some other good by bringing more voices into the conversation of what is read. And really, the the question um, that I want to I want to go to from your article, uh, this really seems to kind of really be all about what does a school understand excellence to be? What is the excellence yeah, that a school is right. trying to achieve? Uh, so, Clifford, walk us through your your argument about this idea of excellence, which I'm assuming is your 
that's the English translation of the Greek arete. What 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 excellence are you considering, and what do you think that excellence entails? Well, I I'd prefer to kind of go through the the uh, the two terms, right? Classical and education, and I think I think the answer to your question is going to come out in that because you know, the simple answer is every school is going to have some version of excellent, right? And it's going to enforce that through various means of, of beauty and ugliness and honor and shame and on all of that. So that has to be understood right off the bat. Um, the, the two different, you know, for example, the two different kinds of excellence that were that you were pointing out with the with the within this debate is one form of excellent is the more liberal one. The excellent person is 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 constantly open to new ideas um and is is more interested in making sure that the debate is is happening along certain uh certain rules so so we want freedom of speech the kind of uh free marketplace of ideas bar nothing right so you can bring in any voice that hasn't been heard yet let's bring them to the table let's consider let's talk uh the other one says no no, no we have us we've answered the question what is what is good what is true what is beautiful we're not we're not going to question those those sources again we're going to now the task is how can we how can we pass that down to our children right mm -hmm. so those are the two so an excellent person is one who knows the tradition really well and is able to embody it and practice it in their life and pass it down to to the next generation right that's that form of excellence the other one is a person who's always demonstrating a kind of politeness uh, a, a kind of um a, a perpetual open-mindedness uh, that that's a different kind of excellence. So, but I think we that'll come out more. And so, I, I when I wrote this article, I thought, you know, let's just I have very modest, a very modest goal here, which is just show the confusion that surrounds these two terms that we use all the time: classical and education. And I know that there's a spectrum here, but what I wanted to do is kind of just show the two poles for mm -hmm. how people understand classical and the two poles for how people can understand education and then i'm i hope that when people see the two different the two extremes they'll be able to think a little bit more clearly okay here's here's more where i i lean right it doesn't mean you have to be all on one side or all the other but mm -hmm. you should know that a lot of people are trying to hold these two contradictory things together in their minds at once and it, they're not really reconcilable so yeah, maybe, uh, so maybe a good way to put that, uh, make that contradiction clear. I've got two lines that uh, I thought really conceptually framed those that opposition. Uh, one, you wrote that education is a process of shaping students according to a mold that is revered as excellence. But the next paragraph, you had sort of the opposite view as education is a process of shaking free of molds for the articulation of self-expression. Uh, so it seems like education has to do with molds, but one side sees uh, the student as maybe the uh, there there is a mold, there is a model that we are trying to call students to resemble. The other side is sort of throwing off any kind of models. Is that is that a fair way to articulate it? Yeah, yeah. So if we want to start with the word education, yeah, the, the one mold would say, okay, here's here's the tradition that we're going to follow that that is our tradition and it and it comes that we get it we get it with we get it with uh literature we get it with uh art right it comes in all of these different ways and all of them try and reinforce architecture for example all is going to try and reinforce our understanding of excellence and beauty and truth as those things are are, are made uh tangible to us in stories in art and and and, and you know other other ways 
the other form of education is suspect of all those things because it, it looks back at the tradition uh, with suspicion to say, no, the people who were who were establishing the criteria were biased in certain ways, whether it was regard to, to sex or race or whatever. Um, and therefore, we should be suspicious of those. And what we should try and do is is deconstruct in a way and see through their biases. And we should allow into the tradition people who were excluded or marginalized, right, to use these kind of pop terms now. Um, but it, it looks at the tradition and it assumes there's there, it's, it's suspect. So uh, therefore, the truly educated person is the one who can see through that to the biases, right? Which is which is a lot of the which is where Freeman's article was saying, look, a lot of what people who adopt this view of education are doing is something extremely similar to the critical theorists uh, on the left, who are teaching children in our public schools to see, you know, whiteness as the problem, uh, male patriarchy as the problem, right? An educated person is the person who's woke, who can see through those those things. So. Freeman was just saying, hello, it looks like we're doing the same kind of thing here. And what we're doing is we're jettisoning, jettisoning the the older view, which was to say, no, 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 we're holding up these people. We're not uh, in the past as heroes, right? He, 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 he reduces a lot of education to hero worship, which is to say these people in the in the past, whether they be fictional or, or historical, had embodied in some way, in some virtuous way, the ideals that we hold up, look to those people, seek to become like them, whether that be saints, whether that be figures like Achilles or famous lives of the, of the Greeks and Romans, like I mentioned in the article with, with Plutarch, hold these people up as paragons, seek to become like like them. These things can't really be, you can't, you can't revere something that you're also suspicious of. Right. You, you can you can try you can try and be a scientist and say, well, I'm just going to learn a couple things from them, but I'm going to I'm, I'm going to be very suspicious of them. A human person doesn't really work that way. Right. You, you can't, um, you know, think about how it would work with your parents. Right. You, you, you can't um, you can't say, well, I'm going to try and um, take notes from what my parents say is good and right, but I'm going to be very suspect and, and, tr and distrust them at some basic level. Right. Um, it doesn't mean you're 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 not thinking anymore, right? Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about young children and we're holding up images and and people as heroes that people should look to, um, you you can't really teach them at at once to to revere and to and to be suspicious of the same people. So, no, I think that's really helpful, and it reminds me uh, a lot of uh, well, I think this whole conversation is really in part is really interesting because both sides could be talking about the exact same set of curricula and what we're really talking about is a is a mindset or an orientation that's coming how do we treat that curriculum how do we treat mm -hmm. this set of knowledge that we've received from previous generations uh, it reminds me of c.s lewis's line in the abolition of man where he talks about teaching as old birds teaching young birds how to fly uh, there mm -hmm. is a specific knowledge that really has to be ex almost experientially passed down. So for Lewis, the uh, the the part he he gets at this also in uh, his essay on the reading of old books. I mean, part of uh, reading older works is because you literally are learning to think like people who are different from you and different in time, but also united in human nature, and that you're learning how to be more human through your experience in those older books. Um, but at the same time, your comments remind me of a uh, famous line from Paul Reichauer, where he, he famously referred to uh, 
uh, Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx as the masters of suspicion. And that all three of those guys really thought, and this was, and, and, and depending on context, sometimes this insight is, is helpful. And that there are times where for uh, where all three of those guys thought that the real way to get to the heart of a thing is not to study it itself, but to peel the thing itself back and see the underlying, whether it's uh, market forces or power dynamics or sexual desires that are all making up reality. Like, and that for those three masters of suspicion, the real need is not to deeply study something, but rather to right. see through it, which Lewis, bring, to bring Lewis back in, at the end of The Abolition of Man, I mean, he, taught, he closes with that great line that uh, to see through a thing is actually not to see it. <laughs> That's that, right. That, yeah. that seems to be the danger there. So it seems to me that what on this, uh, if, if we're thinking about these two poles, on the one side, we have a pole that uh, is really supporting a, a, an education that begins in wonder and receptivity of the past and willingly accepts some of the flaws of that past. I don't know anybody who wants an uncritical receptivity of the past, but we receive the past because that becomes our foundation for learning versus another poll that really, that, that starts in skepticism. And that skepticism prevents a reception of the past. So that instead we're always stuck with uh, critiquing and investigating and trying to pick it apart. And yet we somehow lose the ability to, we, if you start there, you lose the picture of the whole that would enable some sort of reassembly project. And that yeah. these become those opposite views of, of how do we approach a, a traditional curriculum. Yeah. You know, I've been around classical education for a long time. There are a lot of these sayings that are kind of thrown around. And I think it's important to kind of realize that some of the things we take unquestionably actually are contradictory with what we're trying to do. So one I mentioned in the article that I hear all the time is that classical education teaches someone how to think, not what to think. Now, on the surface, that sounds that sounds great. Right, but but what does that mean? That that means it, it to use a different way of saying it is to say we teach people how to see through things, not to see the things in themselves. Right. So it's actually the same. It's this, it's it's that other view of education, which is an extremely modern view. Mm -hmm. um, the other way of helping kind of reveal this thing is looking at the way we look at the term liberal education. A lot of people think that the term liberal there means freeing, right? That that a kind of a liberal education frees your mind uh, and and opens you up in all these uh, ways that that frees you from the biases and the prejudices. And there's there's something true to to both of these sayings, right? But I think that we're at risk of adopting certain assumptions that we we don't want, right? So the 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 old view of what liberal education meant was that it was an education that was proper for a free man, someone who had the leisure not to have to work to be able to study things that are not strictly utilitarian, that are good for their own sake, but that are also part of a tradition that that goes along with the older view of education. So in the classical world, I, I'm just saying, look, you, you can't have both of these views ultimately. You, you, should, you should pick one, you should understand the contradictions pick one and and build a school around that view instead of trying to include both of these things. So the title of the article, The Ends of Mere Classical Education, that's kind of a playoff of, of Lewis's Mere Christianity. But I, I'd written another article for Ed Fonte's a couple years ago talking about 
you know, the, the point of mere Christianity is to convince people to come into the, into, to accept the basic tenets of Christianity. But, but then Lewis says, you've got to pick a room. You've got to dig deep. You've got to, you've got to commit to a stricter understanding, a tighter definition of what these, what these larger ideas bring you toward. And what I'm saying now is maybe the classical education movement is at a state now where we're going to have to get a little more tribal and say, okay, we can all agree on certain broad things, but in order to achieve the education that we all want, we're going to have to dig deeper into our particular definition of what these ideas are. And then I could imagine certain schools that, that are say, we're, we're more of this type and we're more of that type, uh, but that we can get away from these contradictory ideas and, and really bring a little clarity. So that, that's, that's what I was hoping to do. So. So maybe just to uh, offer some caricatures to uh, to to fit that. Um, does Let's that do mean it. you would you would uh, so? I mean, I can I can imagine a um, a high school a high school that's founded sort of on a St. John's University model that uh, adapted to high school that doesn't really make any claim to political conservatism or cultural or social conservatism, uh, but just says you know we are going to read great books from a diverse set of backgrounds and that's really our core and we're more emphasizing the skills of reading of writing and of discussion and the subject matter for that is going to really reflect these five or six kinds of diversity that we've identified as a school and we've then built a book list from that and if i'm understanding you correctly you would still say they they can call themselves classical and that's a legitimate thing and at the same time you could have another school that maybe uh identifies a, maybe they're working from something more like um, John Senior's list of 1,000 good books and 100 great books, or selections from Mortimer Adler's great books with a few additions uh, based on certain criteria or whatever. And they, that kind of school ostensibly says, no, we're, we are aspiring to uh, produce statesmen like Winston Churchill and James Madison, whatever their ideals are. And we believe since Winston Churchill and James Madison read these 60 books in their equivalent of high school career, uh, all of our students will read these 60 books. And if we can do more than that, we will. But we are definitely going to get all these kids through these 60 books. And that school, too, could call themselves classical and maybe aligns with something that's closer to a social, cultural conservatism that's more leadership minded that says, we, we want our students to have high aspirations for cultural significance in, in their future. And we want them to bend society in this direction. And that, that yeah. school too could call itself classical. Is that, are those caricatures correct applications of what you're describing? Yeah, so let, let's, let's, let's then go to the second word that I try and flesh out here, which you, you've already kind of provided a good segue for. So classical, what does that mean? Right. I think in the way we use the term, it can mean simply old. Whatever's old is classical. Um, and, it, and in that sense, you know, the more the merrier. If it's an old book, let's use it. Doesn't matter if it's any, doesn't matter where it comes from. Doesn't matter if it's good by some other standard. If it's old, let's include it in the canon. And who are we to say whether or not it, it belongs or not? If it's old, it belongs. A second understanding of classical. Uh, which I think is the older view, um, is 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 one that's definitively, or sorry, one that one that's determined to be excellent by a class of people who have said this is objectively good, and we're going to adopt it as as formative for our culture. 
you see the word, I mean, I, I dig, I, I kind of like etymology. I dig into the word, the, the etymology of the word classical literally meant um, something that was, that was pertaining to a higher class of people, right? So the, the aristocracy of a, of a civilization would say, this is what's good. And this is what's going to form our people. Um, it, it, it can mean something like belonging to the highest class, approved as a model. And in that sense, um, I, I also was digging into the, to the term ruler, right? So we think of a ruler as someone who, who, who rules, right, who, who governs. But it's actually the same word for when you think of like a, a measuring stick, right? A ruler, a standard is, not, is, is, is the thing by which we measure ourselves, right? And we, when we were talking about education, we're holding the ruler, the measuring stick up to children and saying, come and, and meet the measure, come and, and, and achieve the standard, right? That's that's very different from saying everyone is special and a butterfly and wherever you are and whatever you, you know, education is about discovering who you are. There's no objective standard except to allow for everyone else to achieve their own self-actualization and authenticity, right? Very, very different kinds of approaches. So underneath this debate is is one that's kind of dealing with egalitarianism and democracy versus aristocracy something that america has always struggled with and and you know lexus tocqueville is really good at kind of pointing out you know some problems there and some benefits that we have in our regime but uh that's that's americans are so uncomfortable with something that would that would say that, that would lead to some sort of inequality right which is if there's a standard of excellence then that means that some people are not going to some people are going to fall short and we don't like that. We want to give you know participation trophies to everyone and say that everyone's equal. And so, part of this debate of what makes it so contentious is that there's really uncomfortable in conclusions that draw that that draw from this, right? Which which we're not we're not comfortable with. So, uh, how do we how do we reconcile those two understandings of classical? I think in the classical school movement, maybe you like you said you could have. A classical school that says, hey, we're not going to have a standard here. We're just going to, if it's old, we're just going to expose it to our children. And we hope that they will be inspired by it. And they'll do some self-reflection and understand greater about who they are. And then whoever they want to be, is it's up to them. That's one understanding, perhaps, of classical. And the other would say, um, no, we're going we're gonna to infuse a kind of virtue ethic into our whole curriculum. And, and the education doesn't just start and stop at the bell it continues in the hallways and in the lunchroom that was the school that I, I, I that i got to teach at for a few years and it was understanding that teachers are never off the clock when it comes to demonstrating and being a part of that of, of the enforcement of that measure and that standard we're supposed to live it and and, and teach it and and show it to our students all the time um, and and that cannot the the standard for what that is cannot be perpetually up for debate Otherwise, you'll never have a standard. You can't really pass anything down if it's if it's liquid. So, mm -hmm. uh, so people have got to come to an understanding of what they mean by education. What's the purpose of it? Is it to is it to pass down an inheritance, or is it to open people up perpetually to to see through the biases and and get to some sort of authentic uh, way of expression? Same with classical. Is it just merely what's old, um, or is it some a standard of excellence that we're going to try and embody in our curriculum. And all great questions. I think um, as you're describing that, you're reminding me of my my the tension I felt when I was reading Matthew Freeman's two articles because there and each of his articles I found myself agreeing with parts of his argument, 
but then recoiling mm -hmm. from other other sections. The part I'm thinking of particularly uh, in his second article, he focuses very strongly on the principle of hierarchy. Uh, and and I do I think you're you're doing the same thing here, which I would agree that there is a great amount of our curriculum that is is set in that sense that it really is the it is the 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 subjects the knowledges that have been most widely over the centuries approved as a value for young adults to enter into adulthood. Um, my difficulty with that uh, is, I guess, twofold. Um, I want to complicate the hierarchy there because certainly in America today, I have zero interest in just looking at our current elites and saying, could you please tell me what the good is? Um, mm -hmm. that, that is not the group that I want to say is the highest class in American life today. Um, instead, I want to appeal to Chesterton and his concept of the democracy of the dead uh, and that there is some there is something to Chesterton called himself a Democrat but only a Democrat if you are willing to look at the past two to 4,000 years of Western civilization as a running group of people to be consulted before we make such choices. And in that sort of democracy, there are works that stand the test of time and are widely approved as having lasting value. Uh, so I think that the time element is key there for determining what is the class that then determines what is a classical curriculum to be taught at a classical school it's got to be something that extends across time. And it can't be what I suspect a typical listener is going to immediately assume that you mean class in terms of wealthy, middle, and poor. Like we're not talking about economic class. We're talking about something closer to uh, the, the, the ancient Greek Ariste, the, the, the good, the best people, but defining the best in that broader sense of time, not a particular location in place or a singular civilization. The other piece I would want to add to that uh, is, again, to bring in another Lewis piece from Abolition of Man, uh, is the idea of every generation curating the tradition and that the tradition sort of gets refined and purified. And there are things that and this, too, was a tension point for me with Freeman, because he seemed to appeal for a classical education that was taking us all the way back directly to ancient Greece and repeating some of the pieces from ancient Greece. But we are blessed to live on this side of the cross and Christianity changes an enormous amount of things from ancient Greece. We've also learned a lot of things that are true that the ancient Greeks thought were wrong and, and vice mm -hmm. versa. So there, there's a yeah. sense of curation of knowledge over time that I think comes into view with that. Last thing I want to ask you about, Clifford, and we'll need to start drawing. You want me to respond to all three of these? Okay, oh, I can remember these. I'm, okay. I'm watching our time, but go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so well, the first one on, on what do I mean by class? What did Freeman mean by class? Um, r right, historically, it meant the leisured class, the aristocracy, the, the, the rich folks, right? The people who had leisure to study the things that everybody else didn't have time to study. Just It just happened to be that way, right? Uh, Jefferson and Adams, in their correspondence, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, talk about the the, the need for a natural aristocracy, and that's that's the ideal. That's what we want. You know, you call it a meritocracy, um, but the idea that that people who have unusual talents and ambition and virtue are able to rise—that's what we want. People to be able to come from from anywhere, right, and and be able to speak authoritatively to the rest of us, right. That that's what that's what we want. Um, but we have to recognize that historically, that's not going to be possible with a class 
uh, except with a class of people who have the leisure to do that. So to look back and say, well, the rich people were were mean and evil, um, and they were determining what was for everyone else just because they were rich, that's just not fair, I don't think. And that's that's not a really smart way of looking at things. If you're just considering that most women had to be pregnant like 12 times in their life in order to have to bring two adult people into the world, women are not going to have the kind of opportunity, historically speaking, just necessity. It requires technology in order to overcome that. It's no fault of the past, right? Same with, with people who, are of, who have the means to be able to have leisure. If you're working all day, you're not going to have the time to accumulate, the, to read all of the, that's not That's not their fault. That's not an evil thing. That's just a historical necessity. Um, so the idea is, how can we bring about a, a natural aristocracy? That's the, that's the goal. That's really difficult. Let's try and do that, but um, but that's really hard. Um, the second point you were making, uh, remind me real quick, was uh, is that democracy of the dead and Chesterton? Uh, yeah. Which one did you want to go to? Uh, we can do the democracy of the dead. So so well well so that's part of the first one, right? It's like when we're talking about the natural aristocracy, we want to expose them to the democracy of the dead, right? We want them to expose them to the long, the long, you know, read read as much as you can, right? But um, don't just read anything, right? You you've got to have something that guides uh, your your thinking. Otherwise, you know, you'll end up reading encyclopedias the rest of your life, and right? There's 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 things that are objectively better than 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 other things. Um, and and the second thing is the is the political necessity, right? There's always going to be a a a uh, a need for the current regime to try to perpetuate itself into the next generation. So, right now, pu public school, right, is 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 very much uh, in, infused with the the pieties of the current regime, which is why the classical school movement is 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 a political movement. People don't are not comfortable with that. They're like, no, 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 no. We just want to read books. I'm sorry, you're you're doing a political act. You just have to be honest about that, um, and and that means that there's a kind of revolutionary element to to this uh, as well. So, um, the next point you made was uh, curation and each generation curating the past. Yeah, well, so I mean, each generation is not going to be able to start from scratch and say, okay, what should we what should we include in in our education? It just doesn't work that way. It's like Jefferson wanting to like maybe we should rewrite the Constitution every nineteen years. You know, that's a bad idea. Um, you should start with the assumption that the received tradition is is more or less good. Give it the benefit of the doubt, and I think that's a Chesterton posture, right? Give the benefit of the doubt to the past. Don't take down the fence, right? Unless you know why the fence is there to begin with. Um, so and and that's that's a that's a posture of reverence, and, and this goes in a, in a line with the hero worship thing, right? Assume that the people in the past who were, who who you were told were great, assume that they really were great and that they were merited that greatness. Don't assume that they were, uh, you know, corrupt in some way, and that we have to sort of see through that. I mean, the only pushback I would give on that, I, I guess, was twofold. I mean, I I don't really want to. I I think all humans are are pretty fallen, so. I, I'm not going to assume an unfallen greatness to to really anybody. So I'm not surprised when my heroes have clay feet, uh, and that that too is a. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of a good historical training is that you start to realize, oh well, this culture might have some heinous thing, but so does everybody. <laughs> like everybody has some heinous thing. Um, one of the things I had particularly in mind there about like the way um, the classical tradition changes. I mean, oh my goodness, the, the lot of women in the ancient world was awful. 
that changes with Christianity because Christianity gives an equal uh, dignity of all humans are made in the divine image. And it takes centuries for that to work out. Uh, the other place, I mean, the other piece that I like, uh, in the article I wrote in this conversation, like literally nobody talked about my favorite sentence. I was really excited about this sentence, so I'm going to add it into this one. Uh, the, in Socrates' day, one of the common methods of teaching was for uh, teachers to sleep with their students. That is universally illegal and awful today. <laughs> that is a change. So if we're going to try to like, uh, and part of what Freeman at least seems to say, I don't know if he's actually saying this, but this is the implication of the second article, is a really un, is an unqualified uh, acceptance of the classical world, and I think that's that's where that for me at least that's a bridge too far. I want to love the Greeks and love the Romans. I want to filter both of those through Christianity and through the course of the past 2,500 years, because I don't live in the world of the Roman Republic. I, I live in the 21st century. And there have been a lot of things that have been figured out. I, I appreciate air conditioning and germ theory. And, uh, and, mm -hmm. and I do like the fact that my car enables me to uh, live 35 miles from where I work. Like all of those are things that are just that have to be grappled with. And so if we're going to talk about a truly classical education in the modern world. I don't think we could ignore all of that. Um, so that's absolutely not. Absolutely that's not. Where yeah. I think Freeman is he's he. He, he, he did he at least his second article did not have the kind of framing that enabled that sort of like well we're going to take this and we're going to pair it with what's happened since achilles like yeah yeah well i didn't know we were going to go to pederasty but um you know in interesting <laughs> that you wanted to bring that up <laughs> well um, it's 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 always a complicating thing when you're like it's, it's well no right it's 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 weird we look that's that's a good example of like something from the classical world that we look at and we 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 can't really wrap our minds around it yet. Uh, yet. I don't, we, we probably never will. But um, uh, so I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure what Freeman was thinking. I, what I suspect though, is that he was using a sort of rhetorical argument, which you can understand as a debate coach, Josh, that uh, he's, he's, he's trying to, he's painting over some, some flaws and he's, 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 he's exaggerating a little bit because he's trying to kind of, overcorrect some to try and reveal something that's that, uh, about the debate, right? That we are, he's offending in certain ways, right? Because he knows that, that, that the pieties are so strong in the other direction that he, I, I think he's trying to course correct. So um, a book I'm, I'm reading right now is uh, Thomas Carlyle's On Heroes and Hero Worship, which is a sort of a classic look. Now he was a Calvinist Christian, right? And, and his opening chapter glorifies Odin uh, but he's saying, look, there's probably something to the historical person, Odin, who became so compellingly excellent to the people around him that they couldn't help but want to follow him and revere him even into generations afterward to the point where he became a mythical legend. Um, and so, yes, I mean, again, Carlyle's a Calvinist, right? He would say Odin, his original, the original person was a fallen human being, totally corrupt, you know. Uh, we all are, and yet it's still possible for humans to differentiate themselves through their choices and habits 
uh, to become better exemplars of of, of human uh, of the of the human person. We think of this in in um, you know in the Christian tradition with saints, right? We hold up certain people as saying, "Look to that person; they did a better job of doing this this life as a human being, as a fallen human being, um, than than other people." Look to them. And and Carlyle points to Christ and 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 reveres him a lot and says I'm not you know I can't even name the person who's we hold up as the highest archetype. Um, so there, there's something about the divine and, and mixing with the human right in a way that we find awe inspiring and we see it in 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 various forms right but but Christ would be the preeminent one. So. Uh, the idea that the classical world has to be filtered through Christianity, I don't see that as a, as much of a, 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 a problem, I, I guess, as, as perhaps you do. I think we can still take the basic idea, right, that there are certain human beings that we can hold up as exemplars, again, as rulers, as the rule that we measure ourselves by. doesn't mean that we see them as flawless, um, but we still can use them as, as helpful examples for us to model our own lives on. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're going to have to draw this to a close. I promised my boss, I would give her, uh, her, her office back in uh, probably about uh, 10 minutes or so. Um, the only thing I, there, there's a lot we could do. We could do a whole separate episode on, on that question and whether or not uh, the, the figures of the past literary or historical or mythical exist as exemplars or for something different. Um, the only thing I'll say there is that I would, and I don't know Thomas Carlyle terribly well. I've, I've read a little bit of his work on the French Revolution. But that's all I've read from him. Um, so I don't know if this fits the book you're describing or not, but I would, I would be very uncomfortable with anybody holding up Jesus as an exemplar to say, this is the archetype that you should follow. Because I think Christ demands something completely other. I mean, he, he demands nothing less than to be absolute king over all of creation. And I'm not trying to become Jesus exactly. It's more like my submission to Christ, it fills me with him. But it's not that I can just like look at Jesus as the example and then do what Jesus did and be like Jesus. This is why the the what would Jesus do um, bracelets, those those things derive from a Unitarian minister named Charles Sheldon, <laughs> who was definitively a heretic. I mean, he, he upheld that that a similar idea, I think, to what you're describing of just like, Take Jesus as the highest picture of what a human should be and then be like that. That's literally impossible. No one can do that. Um, so we might also mean different things by exemplar, but that's that's something that we could get at in a future conversation. I want to wrap all this back around to one last quotation I want to ask you to speak on from your article. Um, this has been a, I think this has been a really fun conversation uh, to help that hopefully is helpful uh, to folks in the classical education space who are trying to figure out what should their schools all be about? Uh, you wrote this line that I thought was just really interesting because I think in one sense, there's a sense in which you clearly mean something by the word excellence, but the word itself is it's called spacious enough that each school could define it as that school sees fit. And I think that excellence becomes sort of that idea of the ruler where excellence is the rule by which we use to measure what we do and are we accomplishing our goal? Um, so you wrote this line, Excellence as virtue is the standard that cuts through race and sex. What did you mean by this? And how can excellence be sort of a, a North Star for, for classical schools? 
Yeah. So on one level, excellence is going to be is going to what it looks like is going to is going to differ. It's going to be particularized. So an article I wanted to point to it that was at the Davenant Institute by a guy. I forget his Chinese name. His his, his Chinese. But he's on Twitter as Chinglican. He's an Anglican Chinese Anglican guy. Really thoughtful. Uh, and he talks about the need for classical education to be centered in a certain civilization. And so he says, for example, if I were going to do a classical school in China, I would hold up very different figures and as pointing toward the way um, than I would in a, in America or in a European-based civilization, right? You have you have to particularize it, and that's very different from this idea of universalizing it, right? Which is to say, we should read everything, you know, from Middle East and Asian and Indian and, and all of the classical literature from every civilization, and we should make our our students into globalists, right? That's a very different version from saying, no, 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 you're living in this place. And, and and this is your heritage, and you should seek to become what these people have always thought to be excellent, right? So, um, so on one level, it's it's particularized. On, on the other level, excellence, uh, I think, is a as a, is a universal human thing, right? There are certain virtues that cut across time and space and race and sex, right? So, um, men and women are going to look. Courage is going to look different in men and women on one level, but it's still in its at its at its nature. A very similar kind of thing. It involves fear and involves cowardice and rashness and knowing how to make pr use prudential uh, decisions in, in regard to those things. So, um, but I think n being able to think clearly about those two things, right, whether the particular nature and the universal nature of virtue, um, leads to an under a clear understanding that people who are of a different race and sex and I can embody those virtues in a way that I can perceive as excellent and want to emulate it myself. Excellent. Well, fantastic. We could, I know we can Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. See, we, you, we, you we reached it. We found it. We, we got yeah. there. Um, okay. And let's see, I'm trying to decide if I want to ask any of my last questions. Uh, nope, I'm going to wrap this up with uh, Clifford. Where can people find and follow your work online? If they are intrigued by our conversation, how can they see more of what you do? Uh, I post most everything that I write uh, on on my Twitter handle, which is at CP Humphrey, at CP Humphrey. Uh, I, I write a lot at American Reformer. I've written at uh, Ad Fontes, um, The American Mind most recently. Something I've been interested in is this question of leadership. And I've written a couple couple things about it uh, there, but you can find it on uh, on Twitter. So if you want to follow my most excellent thoughts, my ideas that win, follow me on Twitter. Excellent. Hopefully, all of our listeners will find you on Twitter, and uh, just maybe this show will be so big that uh, they will make you trending for just a little while. Absolutely. And I should say, if you're watching this on the YouTube's, um, I wrote the name Winston down here because uh, it's a <laughs> shout out to our our good friend Winston Brady. So. My yep. name is actually Clifford Humphrey, but just just in case, uh, just in case you manage to fool anybody, uh, fantastic. Right. Well, Clifford, uh, yeah, Clifford, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. This has been really fun. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of the Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Clifford Humphrey, author and academic administrator, working to rebuild American higher education. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful.